So I've often said, if you've been here at Christ Community Church, you've heard me say this, that if you're paying attention, a lot of times the sermon gets preached before I even come up here and open the Bible. This morning is not different at all. We sang that great Wesleyan hymn, and can it be that I should gain? And verse 3 is just phenomenal. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, you just sang this a few minutes ago, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and I followed thee. Well, what Wesley wrote about, what we just sang about, what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about is exactly what this morning's sermon is about. And that is regeneration. Regeneration, it's a kind of fancy word. It's just what word we use to describe the process by which someone becomes a Christian. Maybe you've heard the word conversion. But that's what we're talking about, regeneration, which is at the heart of the doctrine of conversion itself. This morning, we're continuing our, our multi-year series that I began in 2017 entitled, So Great a Salvation. And the reason we started in 2017 let me see if anyone knows. I love to quiz this congregation. Why did we start a sermon series on salvation in 2017? Does anybody remember? Yes, 500-year anniversary of what? The Reformation. That's right. This weekend, at specifically October 31st, every October 31st is, well, we call it Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. Actually, that's where Halloween comes from is All Hallows' Eve. They just kind of mixed it up and put it together. But it's also called Reformation Sunday because on this day in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the uh, castle door of Wittenberg to talk about reforms that the church needed to make. And for the last 504 years, the world has never been the same. God had used the Protestant Reformation. It was certainly more than Martin Luther, but he used the Protestant Reformation to recover the biblical gospel. Now, I'm not saying that the gospel was entirely lost, but it had become seriously eclipsed by cultural religiosity, church traditions, and, and a general apathy toward the things of God. So powerful, and if you history students know, was the Protestant Reformation that the entirety of Western civilization has been impacted by it. The entire globe, as a matter of fact, since then has been affected by the results of the Protestant Reformation, even if people are unaware of this fact today. If you think people get excited about getting a new iPhone, that was nothing compared to how Europe went nuts over the recovery of the gospel. And for many people, getting a Bible in their hands, in their language, for the first time since ever, it transformed Western civilization. So in this series, as a multi-year series, we're going to look at what those reformers called the order of salvation. For those of you who like Latin, and Latin was the academic language of the then-known world, the ordo salutis, right? You Harry Potter fans like that kind of thing. It means the order of salvation. And what the reformers saw as they got into the scriptures were various passages in the New Testament. We kind of get a, maybe a peek behind the curtain, a look under the hood, where the Holy Spirit is actually revealing to us how salvation kind of works, what its constituent parts are. So as an example, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul writes, and those whom he predestined, the theological words are in red, he also called, and those whom he also called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, as I said, there are many scriptures that reveal this kind of order of salvation, and they're generally in a pretty, uh, the, the pattern's pretty much the same, even though certain words might get substituted. 
But Christians have long since realized that in those passages like Romans 8.30 and other passages in the epistles, we get a peek behind the curtain of what this process of salvation is. What it is that God is doing in and for us. And this morning as we continue this series, this is the fourth year of the series. Um, there's probably about six more years in it. We do it once, once a year, so it's going to take a long time. We are talking about the doctrine of regeneration. And you might think, well, this is a theological doctrine. It's a theological topic. I'm more in practical Christian living. I can kind of check out. No, you can't. Let me give you three reasons why it's important for you to understand the doctrine of regeneration. Number one, reason number one is because every Christian, if you are a Christian in this room, every Christian is impacted by it. As a matter of fact, truly understanding regeneration is the difference between getting the gospel and just being part of a traditional religious system. Understanding regeneration is the difference between the gospel and just traditional religion. Number two, you will learn more about God because of it. And number three, you will gain a greater understanding and appreciation of your faith through it. So those are three important reasons why you should know about the doctrine of regeneration, why you should be paying attention this morning. And the way we're going to do that, the way we're going to move forward is by asking and answering three key questions this morning. Number one, what is regeneration? Number two, what is the nature of regeneration? And number three, what are the results of regeneration? First of all, we need to define it. Well, what is this thing, right? And then what, what is the, the, the engine of it? What is the oughtness of regeneration? And then finally, what are those results in our lives if you are a Christian? So those are the three points we're going to make today. Be prepared. We're going to jump around your Bibles quite a lot, a little bit more than normal. So just kind of get your, get your finger on the table of contents if you need that and get ready to turn. But you can stay right now in, in John chapter 3. Let's look at it. Number one, what is regeneration? Very important because, as I said, understanding regeneration goes a long way to just understanding Christianity itself. I want to read to you a book I've been reading this week. It's really good. And, and, and normally I just don't read right out of people's books, but... I thought the way he captured it was so practical and insightful and I think relatable that I think most of you will, will get on board with what I'm talking about. So let me just read this. It's from his introduction. It's from the book, Conversion, How God Creates a People. This is what Michael Lawrence writes. He's a pastor in Portland. Recently, I was talking to one of my friends about his two adult kids. He's worried about them. They're not into drugs or partying. They both have healthy, warm relationships with their parents and peers. They went to excellent universities and excelled. They're athletic, they're ambitious, they're beautiful, they're charming young adults. If they were your kids, you'd be proud of them as he is. Still, you'd be worried. Because neither of them seems to have the slightest interest in Jesus Christ. And to make matters more difficult, both of them identify themselves as Christians. These two kids were raised in the church. They learned their Bible lessons in Sunday school. They were active in youth group. They were never outwardly rebellious. They each prayed the sinner's prayer. They were baptized when they went off to college. They kept the nice moral behavior they learned at church, but they basically left Jesus behind. They didn't abandon the name of Christian. They simply stopped showing interest in the Christian life. You understand why my friend is worried. He has nice kids who are convinced that they don't need Jesus because they already have him. Yet the more he watches their adult lives unfold, the less and less confident he is that they even know Jesus at all. 
I serve in a church where I've had a conversation like this with scores of parents. It's, heartbra it's a heartbreaking conversation, not least because these parents feel betrayed. They did what they were told to do. They raised their, kid, their children right. They led them in the sinner's prayer. They took them to church and enrolled them in all the right programs, all in the confident expectation that by doing so, their children would love Jesus too. And it didn't work. Now, before you think he's going to break off into a chapter on parenting, this, is, this issue is not an issue of parenting, not at all. It's a theological issue, one that I think plagues most evangelical churches in America. It's not a parenting issue. They weren't bad parents. They were actually good parents. It's a theological issue, a misunderstanding of one of the core doctrines of Christianity on conversion. I thought this book was so good. It's about a two-hour read. I thought, I want to I get a few copies. So I want to give the two copies of this book away. Does anybody like a copy of this book? Okay, a hand went up back here. And I see a hand back there. So there you go. And then right here, Hank. All right. Now, maybe you're hearing that. It's not a parenting book, right? I hope I made that clear. But maybe you're hearing that, listening to, and you can relate to it. Maybe you are a parent, and that relates to you for your children, adult children or young children. Maybe you are a son or a daughter, and that relates, you can relate to it because that seems to describe your mother or father. Maybe you are a Christian, and that describes maybe some friends in your friend group. Maybe that kind of describes a church member you know of in this very church. At some point, maybe you can relate you would say that they are nice people, as these adult children are nice people. But as you think about it, you wouldn't say that they were new. Not radically new, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that those who are in Christ are a new creation. All things of old have passed away. You see, friends, that's what the gospel promises. The radical claims of Jesus Christ and Christianity is that you can be radically new not just nice. According to Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology, the definition of regeneration is that regeneration is an act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. But so often, as we've just heard from this testimony here, even in our churches, we end up proclaiming a gospel of nice rather than the gospel of new. And friends, if Christianity, practically speaking, is about being nice, well, eventually people will figure out there's a lot easier ways to be nice and a lot less demanding ways that we can be nice. Which leads us to our passage here that Randy read for us in John chapter 3. This conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus was a religious man, he was a good man, a nice man who wanted to be better, no doubt, which is why he comes to see Jesus in the first place. And to Nicodemus, to be a nice man means to be a good Jew, which means observant, uh, observance of Torah, staying away from Gentiles, attending services at temple, being good. Moral achievement was the standard. After all, nice people get into the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you've heard something similar as well. But we realize here that being nice, in fact, is exactly the problem. The gospel isn't about making us nice. The gospel is about making us new. Now, don't get me wrong, as before we unpack this, I totally understand the appeal of being nice. 
to be a nice person, to be a good person, to be a person who's trying to better themselves is to feel good about yourself, isn't it? To be nice means that we're trying to be better, to improve ourselves, and that is to feel good about ourselves. And when we feel good about ourselves, isn't it a lot easier to just commend ourselves to others? Maybe even to God? That we actually are worth something. You see, being nice, when you think about it, that gives us the moral, spiritual currency by which we can provide ourselves with some self-justification, right? And the more of this currency we have, the easier it is to convince God and other people that we have some value because we are nice, and that's our moral, spiritual currency. So the nicer we are, the more currency we have, the more worthy we are, the more value we have. It's about being nice. There's an appeal there. It makes sense. But the problem with the gospel of nice is that it's based on three dangerous ideas. The first one is an optimistic view of human nature. And think about it, right? So, and, and, and I know that we all know somebody like this. Maybe we are this way that we struggle with the biblical definition of love from this concept of being nice. And nice is rooted in this view that we actually can be good enough, right? Not perfect, mind you. We all know that perfection is an impossibility, and it's arrogant to believe that I actually can be perfect, but we do believe that we can be good enough, that human nature has that ability. So the first problem with the idea of the gospel of being nice is it's rooted in a wrong view of human nature. Number two, it's rooted in a domesticated view of God, isn't it? Because after all, if it's not about perfection and just being good enough, God certainly can't be judging us on absolute terms like perfection and holiness. God must judge on a curve. I may not be as good as Mother Teresa, but I'm certainly not as bad as a Hitler, so I'm okay. God's absoluteness, his perfection, his holiness, those are relative terms. He doesn't mean for us to take them that seriously. We have a domesticated view of God. So it's an overly optimistic view of human nature, a domesticated view of God, and third and finally, it's a view of religion as a means of moral reform. And so it's good for you. Just like getting yourself involved in charitable causes or something else. So the view of nice is based somewhere in these three ideas. An overly optimistic view of how good we can be, a domesticated view of God, he can't be judging us that harshly, can he? and a view of religion as a means of moral reform. Let's look at our text in John 3. But did you notice what Jesus says to Nicodemus? Three different times, Jesus basically implies you don't need reform, you need rebirth. Look at verse 3. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And finally, verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Friends, the heart of the gospel, the heart of the Christian faith, it is not about reform but rebirth. 
Those are two radically different things. Not your old life made pretty, like putting makeup on a pig, right? But an entirely different animal altogether. You see, if it's just about being nice, then friends, there are many other places people can go for that. Many other less demanding, less inconvenient ways to be nice. But if it's about brand new life, there's only one game in town for that. And that's Jesus Christ. So if our view of the gospel is that it's about making me nice, it shouldn't be a surprise that many people will leave it because there are many a lot easier ways to be nice. But if your view of the gospel is that it makes you alive, it gives you life, there's only one message for that. And that's the message that Jesus brings. You see Nicodemus back here in John 3, he just felt he needed a little bit of reform. That he just needed a little bit of spiritual mojo to kind of get him over the edge. That he was doing okay, but he needed a little, maybe of this Jesus juice to help him be even better. To vindicate himself before the world, before himself, before God maybe. You see, he assumed that God would be pleased with his self-efforts. He assumed that God would give him credit for trying harder. Nicodemus assumes the whole point of Judaism, as we might think of the whole point of religion, is to make him a better person. Friends, that's how nice works. That's how nice works. God wants me to be good. I can be good. Religion can help. See how it all works together. But Jesus blows Nicodemus's mind. If, if you, as you listen to Randy read it, and you go further down, Nicodemus is totally stumped. He can't get this. And Jesus is stumped that Nicodemus is stumped. He says, aren't you a teacher of Israel, and you don't even get this? Because Nicodemus thought we just needed to be reformed. But Jesus says the problem is so much bigger than reforming some of your morality. See, friends, the problem with nice, nice blunts our sense of guilt. I'm not asking you to be not nice people, right? But the problem with being nice, and if you in fact actually are nice, that niceness can blunt the feeling of your guilt that you have sinned against a holy God. Your feeling of being nice can take away your need for forgiveness and mercy. You actually being a nice person can dispense with the reality that you need atonement and a substitute because you are nice. And if you need to be nicer, you can be nicer still, and religion can help you be nice. That's how the gospel of nice works. Friend, let me ask you this morning, are you still trying to be a nice person? Are you still trying to show God how good you are? Are you trying to convince yourself of how good you are? Are you trying to establish your moral track record, your achievements to impress God, others, maybe yourself? Are you trying to ignore your guilt by doing more nice things? Do you think being nice is the power that you need to get through life? You know by now, you know 
intellectually, if you've been at this church for a while, you know intellectually that that is not the gospel, that is not Christianity. But the question I'm asking to you, how do you live? Are you functionally living that way? Have you somehow believed or embraced a different gospel than the gospel of grace and justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone? You see, regeneration is not about making us new, excuse me, not about making us nice. It's about making us fundamentally new, because nothing less will do. Regeneration is that doctrine that teaches us how God gives spiritual life so that we are born again. And friends, just like you did not play any role in your physical birth, I have some good news for you, although it might be a little bit surprising, you do not play any role in your spiritual birth as well, which leads to our second point, a second question this morning. What is the nature of regeneration? It is wholly a work of God and not us. If you're familiar with John's gospel, you know several chapters later in chapter 11, we have a beautiful illustration of the very thing Jesus is teaching Nicodemus here in chapter 3. You see, Jesus' good friend, uh, Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, had passed away. About three or four days later, Jesus shows up. You can turn over to John chapter 11. It's an, it's an amazing chapter. It's just a few pages to the right. A few days later, Jesus shows up and basically says, hey, roll the stone away. And I love what, I'm not sure if it was Mary or Martha. She says, but Lord, he's been dead for a few days and he stinketh. If you read the New King James Version, right? He stinketh. But Jesus says, roll the stone away. Let me read to you in verse 43 of John 11. Verse 41. So they took the stone away. Oh, let me go back to verse 40. So Jesus says to her, because they've been saying, he's been dead for four days. You're too late. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And Jesus cries out in verse 43, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus just comes stumbling out of the tomb because he's still wrapped up in the linen cloths. It's over his face and hands and feet. And Jesus says in verse 44, unbind him, let him go. Lazarus was dead. And then along comes Jesus. And he speaks his life-imparting words. And life, Lazarus, is reanimated. He's regenerated through no work of his own. Like the Wesleyan hymn we sang, he rose, went forth, and followed thee. What a beautiful illustration of what Jesus just got through telling Nicodemus in chapter 3. You can almost imagine, using some sanctified imagination, Nicodemus catching up to Lazarus. Dude, what was that like? Jesus just told me about something like this, and I'm just seeing it happen. Here's the point. The life-imparting work of regeneration is solely a work of God's mercy towards us. The life-imparting work of regeneration, the spiritual life becoming into us is solely and completely a work of God on our behalf to us. To, to illustrate the absolute helplessness or, or, or lack of contribution we make to the process, the Bible, the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, we're going to stick to the New Testament, 
uses the metaphor of birth time and time again. Go with me to John chapter 1. A few chapters to the, to the left from John 11. John chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 12. Verse, we're going to read verse 12 and 13. John says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Go to James chapter 1, verse 18. Go all the way to the right. You hit the first Peter. It's right, it's right after Hebrews, before first Peter. James chapter 1, verse 18. This is the half-brother of Jesus. James writes this in chapter 1, verse 18. Speaking of God, of his own will, he brought us forth. How? By the word of truth, that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now go to 1 Peter, just two pages to the right. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. This is what Peter says. So we heard from, we heard from Jesus, we heard from John, we heard Jesus illustrate it, uh, and we heard from James. Now we hear from Peter, 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, Jesus makes it so clear, go back to John's gospel, in fact, Jesus makes this so clear that we can't even come to him unless God is working inside of us. John chapter 6 I call this chapter the stump of despair because I remember when I was in my mid-20s, I was wrestling with a theological issue, and man, I did not want to read what I read in John 6, but as I've been trying to teach, it doesn't matter what I want, doesn't matter what you want, doesn't matter how I feel, it matters what? What the text says. And I remember I was a Greek student learning the Greek, and so I was reading the original language and went, yeah. I called the stump of despair because I couldn't get it out of the ground. Now, that's why John 6 has a special place in my heart. But, but, but the issue I'm talking about today is not the issue that I was wrestling with. It was another one. But the point is this. Jesus says here, uh, verse 44, you can't even come to him unless the Spirit of God, the Father, is working. Look at verse 44. So just to set the scene, Jesus is saying some radically uh, shocking things to the, the multitudes that are following him. Jesus is turning up the heat about discipleship. He's letting them know what it's all about. And so verse 44, I'm going to take it to verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. As if that wasn't enough, he says that he repeats it. Look at verse 65. And Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my father. What in the world? Go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. You want to see this play out? It's amazing. We are building theology. This is how you understand God better. You, you look at his word and the word informs you. Acts 16, 14. We're going to see an illustration of this. Acts 16, 14. One who heard us. This is Luke, the physician, recording all the, the, of, the events of the early church. 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now, I just need to be clear. This doesn't mean Christian, right? Worshiper of God was what uh, uh, Jews would call Gentiles who believed in Judaism. Another phrase, a God-fearer. So what, what, we're not, what Luke is not saying, Lydia's already a Christian. She was a Gentile who was a God-fearer, who obeyed Torah, who would try to go synagogue. She was a convert to Judaism. That's what he means by worshiper of God. Look at the next sentence. The Lord opened her heart, and there's this infinitive phrase, to pay attention, in order to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So not only do we have Jesus teaching, that, teaching us this in the Gospels, that it is the Father who animates us, who draws us to the Son, we see it illustrated in the life of Lydia here in Acts 16. Furthermore, we see it taught in the epistles. By the way, that's a really good rubric to use. If it's taught in the Gospels, demonstrated in the uh, Acts, and you see it reinforced in the epistles, that's doctrine, pretty much. As opposed to some things you may read in the book of Acts, they may or may not be doctrine, right? There's a difference between describing what happened and explaining what should happen. But when you see it described in Acts and taught in the epistles, especially when Jesus is teaching on it, you can say this is theological doctrine we can base our lives on. Here's my point. Jesus teaches it. It's illustrated in Acts. And even Paul, go to 1 Corinthians. Uh, that's two books to the right of Acts. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Even Paul teaches this. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Corinthians, they weren't Jews. They were a totally crazy uh, Gentile church, right? This is the when, uh, Christians gone wild kind of a church. This is a church that was out of control because they were all Gentiles bringing their baggage into the gospel. And so they had to learn a lot about the gospel. Paul is explaining to them the power of the preached word, even though that might seem foolish, right? So that's the context here. Look at chapter 2, 1 Corinthians, verse 14. Listen to what Paul says. By the way, I want to set you up for success Get your finger in Romans 8, because I want to show you how what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 is identical to what he says in Romans 8, even though the words may be slightly different, the concepts are there, right? Okay, so this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What's Paul talking about? What he's saying is he's saying the natural person as opposed to the spiritual person, and to use our language here, the unregenerate, unregenerate individual is the natural person. The spiritual is regenerated because they have new spiritual life. That, that's what Paul is talking about here. Here's what I want you to notice, though. The natural person, the unregenerate, oh, I just lost Romans 8. No, notice what he says. Does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Notice the construction of even the grammar in the Bible. Does not accept. It's an act of the volition. I'm not going to accept this. He willingly does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because to him, they're craziness. But why? Look at the very next phrase. And he is not able. That's not a phrase of volition, friends. That's a phrase of ability. The reason he will not accept it is because he cannot accept it. Because he has no spiritual life to embrace this as truth. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see the same dynamic at play. 
Paul's going to use slightly different language because he's dealing with slightly different circumstances, but conceptually it's identical. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit. That's that volition language. The mind set on the things of the flesh, the unregenerate mind, the things of the world, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There's the same dynamic. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Why? Because their mind is the mind of the flesh. They aren't regenerate. They don't have spiritual life. They're not being drawn to the Son. Friends, I, I hope you are recognizing the precarious situation here. What is the answer? What is the solution to our deadness and inability? Ephesians chapter 2. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. It's right after Romans. Those of you who don't bring your Bibles anymore because you think these scriptures on the screen, you're like, dang it, I should have brought my Bible today. Ephesians chapter 2. What is the solution to our deadness and inability? Oh, this is so good. Let me read you the first couple verses. And you were what? What's it say? Dead. Does it say you were sick and like you could just try harder? No. You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. The language is so beautiful. I mean, it's just such, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Imaginative. Not, not, Not as if fake, but like. Boy, there's some stuff here. Just follow along. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those three verses, that's like a spiritual autopsy of our condition apart from Christ. And what is the conclusion? You're dead. You're done. You are a slab on a table. What is the solution? Verse 4. But God. What about him? Being rich in mercy. Why is he rich in mercy? Because of his great love, which with he loved you and I, even when we were dead in our trespasses. What did he do? Made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. This is what Jesus is saying in John chapter 6. You can't even come to me. Why? Because you're dead. You're completely dead. He made us alive with Christ. Friends, if you're paying attention, and I hope you are, the conclusion you should be coming to is that when it comes to your regeneration, you did nothing to contribute to it anymore then you contributed to your physical birth. How many of you here contributed to your physical birth? Right? We get that. In the same way, we did nothing to contribute to our spiritual birth. What does that mean? Which means, friends, you cannot take any credit for it or feel any sense of moral accomplishment. There goes your leverage with God. If it's all a work of God, then you have no leverage with him, do you? If new life is something that God gives out, then all you can do is humbly 
ask for it and plead that he give it to you. Friends, have you asked for this new life, not because you seek to vindicate yourself before God, but because you realize you possibly could not? And that the only way you can stand before him is that if he gives you this new life, because how much niceness is enough niceness? How nice do we have to be to merit heaven? Do we really believe that Jesus died a horrible death because the real threat to humanity is that we're simply not nice enough? Is that the work that the cross was meant to undo? Of course not. The cross was meant to solve the problem that because of sin, we're all dead. And dead people do not need better manners. They need new life. But how many of us live our lives just trying to get better manners? To be nice, to be reformed, and we don't have new life. And friends, the reason Jesus had to die was a life had to be given so a life could be received. It's not about us simply asking Jesus into our hearts as if it was all up to you anyway. It is about you crying out, Lord, would you raise me from death and give me new life? And I realize if you're really connecting the dots, you're saying, but, but, but I don't even have the ability to do that. And, and, and we're just talking about one sliver of our salvation, right? We're, we're talking about one half of conversion, regeneration. Come back next year or talk to me after the service. About the other half, faith and repentance, right? Or read the Bible yourself. And, 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 but what I'm trying to get you to understand is, man, your salvation is mind-blowing if you have it. Psalm 111 12 says, great are the works of God studied by those who delight in him. If you are a Christian, you should be going like, man, I kind of want to know more about this because I've just been taking this for granted. And I hope you're also recognizing, friends, the preciousness of your salvation. How precious this is. Did you think maybe th this whole time, were you thinking that it was you that chose God? Are you starting to realize, ooh, it's God that chose me. And this shouldn't be a surprise because they, they kind of arc disciples, the first disciples. John 15, 16, what does Jesus tell them? You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. And so if the primary disciples didn't choose Jesus, but Jesus says, I'm choosing you, why would it be different with us? They're not any better than us. They were just the first of us. And Jesus says very clearly, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And appointed you because you needed new life and you can't give that to yourself. Now, what, so this is very important. We, we talk about what is regeneration. It's God imparting spiritual life to us. What's the nature of it? It's totally one-sided. It's God-sided. It's, it's, it's monergistic. In other words, there's only a work of God. Now, that's the nature of it. What are the results of regeneration? And this is really important. We're going to conclude with this. Because this is how we know the practical difference between just being nice and being new. Oh my gosh, we're almost done, and I'm only, yeah. We're, I got, okay. Ah, how do I do this? We're gonna run late. Give me grace. Breathe in, breathe out. Okay. 
Ephesians 2, back in Ephesians 2, very helpful to realize our predicament, but it's also verse 8 and 10 unpack this, right? So go down to verse 8. For by grace you've been saved, we read that through faith, this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of your works or your merit or being nice, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, okay? So regeneration results in something, it results in good works, and I just want to conclude by talking a little bit about what that means individually, and then as a, as a, corporately as a church, because as we learn, the Christian life and the church are one and together the same, and so we should see both of this in our lives. So what we do know is that a Christian is not someone who merely prayed a prayer or walked down the aisle and then tries to be good, that's not what a Christian is but is someone who, as Jesus says, as Paul says, is born again, and as a result has a completely new nature, right? Radically new nature, and acts on that nature. A nature that's characterized by repentance and faith. A nature that's characterized by loving God and desiring to know him and know him more, right? That's the new nature. But what does that look like? Among other things, it, it looks like a uh, self-examination, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, right? He I told you about that crazy church. And he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Wow, Paul says that. Friends, do you examine yourself to see if your profession of faith is genuine? You should, right? Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now, what should it be that we're testing ourselves? What should we be examining ourselves for? Well, Paul makes it clear in Galatians 5 and 22, 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Do you see these things there? What does this fruit of the Spirit look like, practically speaking? Following Jesus in self-sacrificial love rather than self-righteous morality. Paul said, uh, John says this in 1 John uh, 4, 7. Pursuing a relationship of love with God through loving brothers and sisters in Christ. We see that, right? 1 John 3, 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Okay, we want to know that. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. First John 4, 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, eh, can take or leave it, his brother or sisters in Christ. No, must love his brothers. Friends, is there evidence of this in your life? If you call yourself a Christian, there has to be this evidence, however small it might be, but there ought to be a trajectory of growth in these areas. Repentance and faith, loving God, desiring him, loving your brother and sister in Christ. Friends, if this is not there, no amount of church involvement, no amount of, of mere profession that you are a Christian, no amount of religious values or good works can substitute. Because it's not about being nice. It is a new nature. Friends, can I ask a, an honest question? It may seem absurd, but that's how I get my points across. How many of you desire to eat dog food? No, none of you. And, and, and if you did, you have the social smarts not to raise your hand. Why do you not desire to eat dog food or dig through the trash or maybe lick that vomit that you just threw up a little while ago? Because you don't have the dog's nature. You don't have a dog's nature. 
See, to a dog, you guys all hell, lick a vomit. Dogs are like, oh, yeah, what's this? Oh, that's pretty good. And you're like grossed out, but they're not. Why? Because that's in their nature to do that. Just as it ought to be your nature to love God and love his people and pursue repentance and faith. Friends, this isn't something that should be forced. If you are in Christ, you have a new nature, and this automatically comes out. Not just individually, but also as a people. This morning, Hunter, before he prayed for us, he read from Ezekiel 36, 26 to 29. And this is a very good verse. We often think about it in, in regards to our salvation, and rightly so. But I want to point out to you that every time the Lord, through his prophet Ezekiel, said you in this text, in the Hebrew, the you is plural. In other words, God is not talking to individual Christians here. He's talking about a people that he is making because God is making a people. Friends, our life with God includes a life with his people in the corporate worship and common life of the church, his gathered ones, his assembly. This is why John can say, you are actually a liar if you claim to love God, but you don't love his brother, your brother and sister in Christ. And evidence by your love for them in the local church. Anybody can love anybody in the abstract. That's why I love the local church, because this is where it becomes concrete. And John says, you are a liar if you do not love people that you can see and say you love a God you cannot see. Right? Or why Paul can say, we Jew and Gentiles have become one new man in Christ because regeneration not only gives us a new heart for God, but a heart for God's people. Now why? I'm rushing through this, I know, because I'm running out of time. Why is this corporate aspect of important for us to grasp? And here it is, and I conclude with this, friends. Because a new community of create new creations giving witness to the world through their love and obedience is an undeniable testimony of the gospel. Friends, the world can write off a single Christian as an outlier. Right? We, we all know organizations have their freaks or whatever, people who take it way seriously, right? The world can write off a Christian like that. But if you meet two or three of those, that gets a little bit harder to ignore. What about five or ten or fifty or 200 of these kinds of people living in gracious, loving community, what you now have is the inbreaking of a whole new reality that cannot be explained apart from a supernatural work of God in a fallen world. But friends, the opposite is also true. If we are a community of just nice people encouraging good morals, but not regeneration, a gospel of new, not a gospel of nice. People can easily explain that. What kind of faith, friend, does your, what kind of gospel does your faith proclaim? Does your life proclaim a gospel of a radically new creation because God gave him and you gave you spiritual life because you cried out for it because you realized you were a sinner and you needed new life not just reform rebirth or is it a gospel of being nice a self-satisfying conscious soothing gospel of just being a nice person friends pray that you are reborn, not just reformed. Pray that God pours his mercy on your children and your friends and gives you new life. 
pray that you would realize that unless you have new life in Christ, you are imprisoned, as Wesley said, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Even if it's a, a night of niceness to you, you are still in an imprison. And you will not see the true horror of it until that day when niceness fails you. You need God to give you new life. Thine eye diffused, he's singing to God, thine eye diffused a quickening ray so you can come alive. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, and my heart was set free. So you can know what it means to be a Christian. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be so merciful that you would eradicate from us a desire to simply be nice, moral people who are religious. That you would give us a hunger for new life, that we would cry out for our children and our friends, and we would look for that fruit of the Spirit, and we would love them enough to say, I don't see it. I see nice. I don't see a new creation in Father, because what's on the line is not our lives, our convenience, but the gospel. Your plan to redeem from this dying world a people for yourself. Father, burden us. Burden us to have that new life. And we know because you desire to give it. You say, Luke eleven thirteen. if you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does your heavenly Father long to give the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we pray in his name, in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.